Father in heaven, we thank you that we can study your word once again. We thank you for the chance we have to to learn and to grow. We thank you for the opportunity to open its pages. And Father, tonight we just want to know your truth. We want to know Jesus better, and we believe that that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the more we understand the truth of your word, the more we understand Jesus. So tonight, I just pray that as we cover this important topic, that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would be with our hearts and with our minds. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the mark of the beast in 666. Probably there are very few topics in Bible prophecy that have more that uh, the people find more intriguing or more interesting than the mark of the beast and 666. So tonight we have a title that, uh, you know, I would have been tempted to use early on in this series. Maybe a lot of people would have come out to hear what I was going to say about it, right? But my, my thought is that in order to understand the mark of the beast and 666, we really need to spend some good, solid time studying the prophecies that precede them. In fact, I believe that it's sort of foolhardy to get into Revelation without studying Daniel, without spending time in Daniel. The foundation is there, and um, that's where we understand how Bible prophecy works. From Daniel, I can conclusively, I believe, argue for the, for the prism, the hermeneutic of historicism, as I've talked about on a number of occasions. From Revelation, you can't really prove that because you don't have the vision and then the interpretation side by side to see how the prophecies are supposed to work. And so if we start in Revelation first, we're in sort of in deep water. Um, a lot of people can read it and get different things. And so this is why I, I try to spend some time developing what Daniel has been talking about. Remember last night we were talking about how God wants to write his law in our hearts. And this is to me one of my favorite parts of Bible prophecy is understanding what, how it impacts me. It's not so, impor- it's not so interesting to me to learn what the, what, what world governments are going to do. I mean, that's, that's, in, that's important, I guess, to know, or else God wouldn't have said it. He wouldn't have put it there. But what's important and interesting to me is to know, how does it affect me, right? Is there something I should do responsively? Um, I believe that God put these prophecies there so that we might know how to live in the last days. I believe the message we find in Revelation is meant for those of us who are living in the last days. I believe the book of Daniel is meant for those of us living in the last days. And it's not just so that we can be smarter than the people around us and know what's about to happen. It's so that God and us can have a special relationship, that we can walk with him closer than if we didn't know these things. And so God says, look, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says it again in chapter 10 of Hebrews. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. What a, what a wonderful promise this is. That this isn't something that I have to do for myself. This is something I cooperate because I let God do it, right? I'm willing. I choose to obey and to follow. But it's a miracle I must depend upon Him to do. I must allow Him to do this miracle in, our life, in my life. And um, we looked last night at how as God writes that law in our hearts, there's one particular facet of the Ten Commandments. That, uh, Ten Commandments that perhaps uniquely and, and particularly could be considered the seal or the test of obedience and to see whether or not we are His. This isn't, remember, for us to go around judging other people. It's for us to see 
how am I with my Savior? We're living in the last days. If we are, then we ought to be wanting to be very close to Jesus. We ought to be wanting to have His law written in our hearts. Now, um, we remember that there were a number of characteristics from the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. It had seven heads and ten horns and crowns on the horns. The dragon gave him his power, seat, and great authority. Remember, it was part lion and part leopard and part bear, and, 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 and the dragon had given him those, uh, those other qualities and, and powers. Um, he's worshipped and he speaks blasphemy. Well, guess what? There's another beast that rises in Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to look at that tonight, so get your Bibles ready. We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to begin reading here as the, uh, as the previous beast, the first beast, which, remember, receives a deadly wound. And when is that deadly wound? When does it receive that deadly wound? Do you remember? 1798, once again. Um, it, the, France intended to make an utter end, a forever end, of the, of the church and its superstitions and its rites and its ceremonies and its powers and its desire to rule not only spiritually but also civilly. And um, the, uh, the, the, the Fr- France gave uh, the papacy this mortal wound, as the Bible describes it, a deadly wound or a mortal wound, and, um, and yet that mortal wound would be healed, right? We know that would happen. But notice with me, we're going to start in verse 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Now, I believe this is pointing us to the time that this first beast of Revelation 13 receives a deadly wound. He's, he, he who has been a persecutor is now persecuted, right? He who has led into captivity is now put into captivity. And um, then verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a what? A dragon. Now here you have a very, a very interesting combination of a, a, a beast coming up out of the earth who has two horns like a what? A lamb. Now, what is a lamb? Okay, well, it could be Christ-like. Um, it's gentle, right? It's very, I mean, you don't think of a lamb as one, uh, as, as, you know, how many of you have seen lambs out there in the, in the pasture stalking? You know? Um, no, it doesn't, you don't think of a lamb that way. Lambs, lambs are sort of innocent. Lambs are also young, aren't they? That's a, it's, a, it's a baby sheep. It wasn't a sheep, two horns, it wasn't two, two horns of a sheep, it was two horns of a lamb, and uh, that's a young animal. And so here the Bible gives us something that we haven't seen before. None of the other beasts that have emerged have been young animals. They've all been lions with four heads, or, or I'm sorry, leopards with four heads, or lions with eagle's wings, or they've never been, it's, it's, you know, Dan, at least Daniel didn't describe it, and I think these things matter. Daniel didn't describe them as a a lion cub out there, or, uh, you know, a, a leopard kitten, or whatever they call them. Um, so, I, I think this is a very unique situation that takes place here. There's a, a, a lamb-like beast. He has two horns, like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Now, it becomes very interesting when we read verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Now, who's the first beast? That composite amalgamated beast of Revelation chapter 13, the first few verses. What did we decide that was? Remember, this is, this is Rome after it's divided into ten horns because the crowns are now on the horns, not on the heads, right? Remember that? 
It's speaking blasphemy. It's persecuting. It lasts for 42 months, which is the same as 1260 days or three and a half years in a Jewish calendar. Um, it has to be Rome, and it's not Rome in the imperial Rome. It's Rome as in the Holy Roman Empire or the Church of Rome. Now, once again, I, I may sound a little bit like a broken record, but I want to make sure that nobody misunderstands what I'm saying here. I have nothing against Roman Catholics. Is that clear? Does everyone understand what I'm saying here? Um, I, I, I just believe that the system that was developed through apostasy during the Middle Ages, the early centuries after the apostles died, the system is fingered in the Bible as being a system that is used, instead of being used by Jesus to save souls, it's, be, it's, it's used too often by the enemy of souls to mislead souls. Does this make sense? And um, this is just, I have to be honest to what the Bible says. Um, I'm not the first one that believes this, of course. Every single Protestant on the face of the earth for at least 200 years, I think, believed this. Um, but it's today a very unpopular thing to say. It is. It's just, it's become, um, it's, it's become um, in, in the postmodern world, I'm going to get off the topic here if I'm not careful, but in the postmodern world, there's no such thing as truth and error. There's a journey. We're all on a journey, and we can't judge each other's journeys, and it's all a search for truth. You're not even supposed to find truth. You're just supposed to be searching. That's postmodernism in a nutshell. And I believe that postmodernism undermines the very premise of Scripture when it says, I will send you the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. When it says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Listen, it's not just about searching. It's about knowing. And I, I know it's politically incorrect to say this means that. But I have to go back to the teaching of Jesus. And I think, I think Jesus, the Bible, the Bible said people went and listened to Jesus teach. And, and they came back and they said, this man doesn't teach like the scribes and Pharisees. He teaches as one who has authority. Now, what does that mean? I think Jesus actually told them, this is the truth. You can accept it or you can reject it, but this is the truth right? Whereas the, the Pharisees and scribes, they probably said, well, this theologian says it could mean this, and this, as long as you're still honestly looking, then that's fine, right? I think postmodernism is a great threat within the church now, because many of us have adopted that way of thinking. Um, I, I may not have the truth. I realize I'm still learning. I'm still on that journey, but I want the truth. I don't want to just be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think the Bible says something about that, in fact. And I want, you know, if you can help me in this learning truth, I want that help. You understand? I just want to know what the Bible says. And so um, here you have, here in Revelation chapter 13, I believe you have a new power, which we haven't seen before, coming onto the scene it's something that we haven't seen anything like it, except I guess we had an animal with two horns, but he wasn't lamb-like in Daniel chapter 8. Um, and um, he didn't speak like a dragon. And he says he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So here you have the first beast is still here. This is really an explanation of how the deadly wound becomes completely healed. Because the first beast, who I believe... Is the, uh, is, the, is the church of Rome. Uh, it, it's, it's still here, but this new power is now exercising power over conscience just like the church 
did many centuries ago. All the power of the first beast is exercised again in the presence of the first beast. And he goes on, he says, He causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, not everyone is going to be willing to do that. I can just tell you already, on a number of fronts, um, there's going to be a lot of people who say, you know what? That's Rome, that's Europe, that's the old age. I'm not going to do that. And the devil knows that there are some people who won't bow down and worship the first beast. And so in Revelation 13, you find the curtain pulled back on what is going to be an elaborate, intentional attempt by the enemy of souls to deceive people into worshiping the first beast vicariously. Now, what do I mean by that? In proxy, you might say. Um, Daniel chapter 3, remember that story? We're going to come back to it in a little while. But in Daniel chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar made this image of gold, who did that really represent? Babylon. And in worshiping that golden image, they were really saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the greatest king ever. Your, your, your empire will last forever. Does that make sense? It was, really, it was really Nebuchadnezzar receiving worship through the golden image. Does that make sense? I mean, that's how I think of it. In the last days, through this second beast that arises in, in, in Revelation 13, the devil creates an image to the first beast. People won't, some people wouldn't worship the first beast directly, but they will be willing to worship the image of the beast because they don't necessarily see the connection. And um, the Bible continues, and he says he deceives. Uh, verse 13, he, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the, um, in the sight of men. Um, lost my place here. In the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now, I just want to underscore what Revelation is telling us here. Put yourself in the future, um, because I do believe this is yet uh, unfulfilled. But if you put this in the future, with this taking place, and eventually the mark of the beast being um, pronounced, which no one has the mark of the beast now, at least not if I understand this passage correctly. But if, if, if I'm in the future and I am watching miracles that I see with my own eyes... You think it would be tempting for people to say, well, it must be God? I mean, especially, uh, I don't watch television. Um, but even without watching television, I am exposed to enough of what happens on television to know that there's this mentality of movies and television programs and films and everything, which basically assumes that anything supernatural must be a divine encounter right? Um, there's very little of, well, was that God or was that Satan, <laughs> right? You just don't hear that, not in popular media. If they're angels, it must be God. Well, guess what? The Bible tells us, Paul tells us that angels of, uh, that Satan himself can be transformed into a minister of righteousness. 
Yeah. So we've got to be really careful not to say, well, if it's a miracle, it must be from God. No, I've got to stand on this word. I've got to test everything by what God's word says. And if God's word says that that can't be true, then it doesn't matter if there's fire coming from heaven, it doesn't matter if there are people coming from the dead, it doesn't matter if the lame are leaping or the blind are seeing, it doesn't matter because the devil is able to do great signs and wonders, and if this passage teaches us anything, it should teach us that. You cannot trust your senses, you can trust the Word of God. And let me tell you, friends, if, I could, if you had one takeaway from tonight's meeting, I would be happy. Hopefully you have more than this, but one takeaway would be we have to trust the Word of God even more than we trust our very senses. If God's Word said something is true, then it's true. We have to study and know it for ourselves. Don't listen to it because, listen to uh, me and say, well, you know, Pastor Clark says, Chester says, no. Listen, the Holy Spirit, study, go back, go through those lessons, go, go over your notes, watch the DVDs, read, get books, whatever, but study. And most of all, study the Bible. Because the Bible is the word of truth. And, and so this is, this is so important as we see what's going to happen, these, these miracles that are going to take place. And he, it says he was granted power, verse 15, to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause. As many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or in their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so there's, there's a time when we won't be able to buy or sell if we don't have the mark of the beast. I don't want the mark of the beast. There's a time when we will even be, it will be decreed that those who don't have the mark of the beast should be killed. One thing I know, one thing I know, is that there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was on this earth, but God's people are going to be delivered. Okay, there's going to be a test, but God's people are going to be delivered. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves, what is this second beast? We already know that a beast represents a nation or a kingdom. I mean, that's been consistent from Daniel chapter 7 on, right? We know that. So, the question is, what kingdom or what nation could be represented by this? We saw in verse 10 that this is keyed, the timing is keyed for when the beast is going down into captivity or when that deadly wound is happening, then I see he sees another beast coming up out of the, what does he see it coming out of? Coming out of the earth. Now this is a very, very unusual situation, a very unusual situation because if you'll remember that in the, the previous beasts that we've seen arising, every single one of them have come from somewhere besides the earth. Everyone, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter, um, well, Daniel chapter 8, he doesn't really see them coming out of anything, they're just uh, flying. Um, Daniel chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13, the first beast, Revelation 13, comes up out of the sea. All of those beasts came up out of the sea, and here's the first one that comes up out of the earth. Now, what does the sea represent? Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15 says this. 
The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So what does water represent in symbolic Bible prophecy? Lots of people, right? A populated place. Now this makes sense because in Daniel there was the wind blowing on the great sea. So there's all these people, that's the cradle of civilization, right? The, the, the region where Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome arose, that's the cradle of civilization. That's where the, at that time was a populated part of the earth. And the wind is blowing, there's a storm basically, which represents violence and bloodshed. And every single one of those kingdoms arose through conquering, through conquest, through wars, through fighting. You with me? I mean, that's the symbolism and that's what history shows us. Every single one of them came from that part of the world and they came through conquest, through fighting, through bloodshed, wind blowing on the great sea, a storm brewing, basically. That's how it's described. And so when we, when we see that this the water represents um, this, we remember that these beasts all arose in that same way, the, 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 the lion, the, the bear, the leopard, the, the great dragon, of course, the, the, beast, the first beast of Revelation chapter 13 um, comes up out of the sea with part, part bear and part lion and part leopard and the dragon. And, and they're all coming up out of the sea, but this next beast, it comes out of the what? Out of the earth. And the verb here, there's no mention of wind blowing. There's no mention of a storm brewing. The verb actually, when it says it came up, or it actually is, is the same word when it talks. Remember when Jesus gave parables and he talks about a seed being planted and, and sprouting? It's the same type of word. It's almost an agricultural word. It's almost like it sprouted out of the earth. It's like a tree. When you plant a tree and, and, it, and it, an acorn and it, it becomes a tree. Now that's very different, isn't it? It's very different from the way those other empires arose. Without the strife and, and bloodshed and so forth. So we ask ourselves the question, what power would arise as the first beast is wounded, come from a different, less populated part of the world? It would be represented without crowns. There's no crowns on its horns or on its head or anywhere in this beast. It would be lamb-like or peaceful at first. It would eventually have incredible powers. In fact, it would be able to compel the entire world to go along with its agenda. And really, when you think about this, it doesn't leave us a lot of options, does it? It doesn't leave us a lot of options. If you, if you think about it, there's really not very many countries that were arising from a new part of the world peacefully um, without a king or without a pope that, um, that would be described by this passage, I see no way to understand this second beast of Revelation 13 other than to believe that it represents the United States of America in prophecy. Now I say that as a very patriotic American. I want you to know that. I, uh, I love my country. And um, I believe this is, no offense to anyone here who's from other parts of the world, but I believe this is hands down, the greatest nation to ever exist on the, on the face of this earth. I believe that we are very, very blessed. I've been to quite a few parts of the world. I've been to over 50 countries, 55 countries, something like that, many times in many of them, and spent probably years of my life in third world countries and all over the world, six continents. And I can say unequivocally, there's no place I'd rather live 
than America. There's no one I'd rather be than an American. I'm patriotic. I love my country. In fact, I don't even like to fly on Airbus planes when I travel because they're built in Europe, and I think we should fly on American-made planes, you know, Boeing. That's how patriotic I am. Okay, I'm an aviation buff, but that's another issue altogether. Um, the fact is, as I read this passage, as I read this passage, I see no other way to interpret it except to say that this has to be the United States of America emerging at this time. We look at the timing, for example. We notice that 1776, we have the American Declaration of Independence. Uh, 1883, the independence is acknowledged by the crown. 1787, the U.S. Constitution is written. 91, the Bill of Rights are added. Right then, the, the, the uh, French Revolution is happening in, 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 in Paris and in France, and, and it's at this exact time, as the deadly wound is healed, a new power is emerging. And that's exactly what we see being described in Revelation chapter 13. It's very, very difficult for me to imagine historically any other solution, any other fulfillment. And it's fulfilled so precisely, so clearly. Notice one historian, and he's not commenting on the Bible prophecy. He's just describing how we grew as a nation. We didn't come about like Babylon and Medo-Persia and, and Greece and Rome came about through conquest, did we? Well, I know there were the Native Americans and so forth, but... But we didn't, we didn't have to conquer another kingdom in order to establish our country. Um, this is his description. Like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. Um, we would see a nation emerge that did not have the trademark um, uh, characteristics of the empires of the past. It certainly was different than the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. We see that it would have two horns, two horns like a lamb. And as I have studied this and as I've read many books describing early America and I've, I've tried to understand what makes America so special and so great, we realize that there's no, there's no crowns on these horns, right? There's, these aren't kings or, or, or people perhaps, but these are the two principles, I believe, which have made America great, and that's civil and religious freedom. The ability to have a government of the people and by the people and for the people a state without a king and a church without a pope, democracy or republicanism and, and Protestantism. I'm not talking about um, Republican as in the GOP. I'm talking about the idea we are a republic. We're a nation of the people. We're a nation of, of, of freedom and, and, and civil liberties. And everyone is equal under the law. And these, this is a, a, a strong pillar that has made America great, but equally with our, with our, with our civil um, government, equally important has been the separation of those powers, the separation between church and state, the ability to follow our own conscience, the dictates of our own conscience, um, religious freedom, religious liberty. And so these, these horns without crowns represent that this nation would be ruled by the people, a state without a king, a church without a pope, that the civil power would recognize the equality of all men before the law and spiritual power would acknowledge the right of every man to worship God according to his own convictions of what God requires. I'm thankful to live in a country like that. I've been to parts of the world where they can't worship Him in freedom. I've been in parts of the world where I've spoken with people and I've met with people who have been beaten and left for dead because they were Christians or because they were sharing the Word of God. I've been to parts of the world where I've, I've met people and after Soviet uh, communism who, who had suffered so much without religious freedom. In India today, many people in parts of India, it's very difficult to be a Christian, very difficult to share your faith. 
Um, in parts of, parts of the Middle East, of course, the same is true. And I've had the privilege of being in a lot of these places and meeting a lot of these people, and it's given me a greater love for America and for the freedoms which we enjoy. But I believe the Bible here is predicting, the Bible here is predicting that there will come a time when America will no longer stand for the liberties of conscience. When in the sight of the first beast of Revelation 13, it will create an image, a replica of that, of that intolerant religious political power that would coerce conscience and force worship once again. That's what I believe this is talking about. Now, there was a time, I can honestly, you know, as I've read some of these books about prophecy, um, you know, I, I didn't originate all these ideas. Um, as, as during the Second Great Awakening, there was a group of people who spent a lot of time studying the prophecies. It actually ended up being a part of the Second Advent movement, which, um, which brought to the attention of the Christian world the teaching of the Second Coming um, once again. But even back then, in the middle 1800s, those who were studying the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation concluded what I'm sharing with you today. Now, you're talking only a few decades after America had sprouted from a little seed. And I, I was just reading, in fact, today, I was reviewing for tonight, and I learned something every I learned something all the time, but I was reading a book that was first published back in the 1870s. And he, the author was saying exactly what I'm saying. America, the time's going to come when America will no longer respect religious liberty. Now, that's pretty obvious. But what wouldn't have been obvious in the 1850s or the 1860s or the 1870s would be that America would ever be a country which could cause the whole world to do its wishes. Stop and think about it. America was not a superpower in the 1850s or 60s, right? It takes confidence in believing the Word of God to say that a nation that's 30 or 40 years old, barely has a navy, doesn't have the world presence that the British Empire has covering, you realize at that time the British Empire covered two-thirds of the world's geography, right? If you were just looking, you would say, well, it must be the British. But the Bible's pretty clear here. It has to be America. And these expositors, my hat goes off to them because in the most improbable, even though it's the most improbable prediction, they made the prediction. And I remember as a kid growing up, because I, had, I was familiar with these path prophecies, I had already read some of these books, and I remember thinking, some of you remember with me, um, the Cold War, right? When I was a kid growing up, you know, the helicopters that came over the trees, we didn't know where they were coming from. They were the Russians are coming, you know? Um, today, kids don't even know. We don't have an enemy as America. But in my, in my uh, childhood, there were two superpowers in the world. Um, with all due respect to Russia today, I think that the... Um, the wars that have been fought in the last several decades have shown pretty conclusively that there's one superpower left in the world, and that's America. And um, it's, not so, it's not going out so much on a limb anymore for me to say that 
I believe this country will have this power to be able to influence the rest of the world um, to do what it wants to do. Now, this passage uses some very strong verbs. He exercises all the power of the first beast. He causes worship of the first beast. He does great wonders. He makes fire come down from heaven. He gives life to the image of the beast. He causes all to receive a mark. Notice with me Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the beast or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, this is what we don't want to have. We don't want to have the mark of the beast. Amen? That's what God warns us against in the the second and third angel's message of of Revelation chapter 14. Don't receive the mark of the beast. If you receive the mark of the beast, you're you're going to receive the wrath of God. Now, the question is, what would the mark of the beast be? What can that be? Here it talks about two different things, the three different things. Actually, it talks about the mark of the beast, the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Now, last night we we studied, and I hope it was clear, um, I hope it was clear that obeying God's law, obedience is how God identifies his people. That's the test, that's the sign. Now, it doesn't, it's not how we're saved, but it is how he knows and how a true believer responds, right? And we talked about that seal of God being obeying his law. Now, if that's the seal of God, and in Revelation it's contrasted with the mark of the beast, then it only makes sense to me that the mark of the beast must be the disobedience of God's law and the obedience of instead a human law, a man-made law. Obviously, it would be the beast's law. Does this make sense? Um, Now, I realize there's no one verse I can point to and say the mark of the beast is. There's no one verse that anyone can. But as we look at the big picture, I believe God would want us to be able to understand it. And this is the only way that, that I can come to an understanding of it. I want you to turn back to Revelation, Exodus chapter 20 once again, because I want to show you the difference between God's law and the beast's law. Do you think that would be insightful tonight? I'm going to, I don't have Re- Exodus 20 on the screen. I just have the beast's law on the screen. And I say that with, um, you know, we, we use the word beast in a very pejorative way. And so I don't mean that to be negative when I talk about the beast's law. I'm talking about the Church of the Middle Ages, its law, right? And, um, and that's just the term the Bible uses, and so I continue to use it. Now, Exodus chapter 20, look with me at what these Ten Commandments are, and then compare with me the commandments that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Now, it used to be in some Bibles that the translation would actually have these laws written in Exodus chapter 20. Um, I looked in, in a copy of the Reims Douay, and actually it isn't much difference in Exodus 20 than it is in my New King James. But I just Googled Roman Catholic Ten Commandments. Don't you love Google? I don't know how we survived without it. Um, and I chose a, a distinctly Roman Catholic site. It's called beginningcatholic.com. And um, this is sort of like a catechism to teach you what the Catholic Church believes, all right? And I simply said, okay, what are the Ten Commandments according to the Roman Catholic Church? I knew this because my mom grew up a Roman Catholic. And she told me this was, these were the Ten Commandments that she learned. Now, notice, you're comparing Exodus 20, right? You, you've got that in your Bible? 
I'd rather you know the truth than the, than the distortion of the truth, but tell me what's different. Number one, first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Is that pretty much the same as the first commandment, Exodus 20? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much along the same lines. What about number two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's not there? I've heard that before. Ah, they skipped one. What did they skip? It's not a typo, friends. I, cop, I, I cut and pasted, okay? It's, it's not a typo. They did away with the one about graven images. Why? Well, because they use graven images, right? And so rather than have themselves be in hot water with the Ten Commandments, it's easier just to change the Ten Commandments. So we go on, and number three, number two is basically number three, right? Okay. So we're, we're off by one, right? Number three, uh, number two is, uh, number three is remember the Sabbath, get, uh, uh, oh, just remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Help if I can read. How's that? Okay, it's abbreviated. What's missing? Oh, which day is the Sabbath day, right? Well, that doesn't really... Why do you think they would take that out? Well, they changed that too, didn't they? Um, we'll talk about that more in just a second. And that, remember, remember that language? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the Creator. That's the very language that's borrowed in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. When he says, worship the creator, worship him who made, right? I mean, I think that's pretty important language, but nevertheless, that's taken out. The honor your father and your mother, that's pretty much the same, right? You should not kill, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness. Everything's good so far, right? Number nine is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Number 10, you should not cover your neighbor's goods. So how do they end up with 10 again, even if they got rid of number two? They split number 10 into two commandments. And that's how they get to Ten Commandments still. I mean, everyone knows there's Ten Commandments, right? So you've got to have ten of them. And this is what Roman Catholics are taught is the law that they are to follow. What have they done? They've removed the Second Commandment. They've removed the Seventh Day from the Fourth Commandment. This is, this is not... This is not just coincidence, friends. Remember Daniel chapter 7, verse 25? You shall seek to change times and laws. Daniel predicted this power would actually do this. Very, very fascinating. Very fascinating. So on one hand, you have God's law. And he says, I want to make it a special sign between me and your people, me and my people. I want to write it in your hearts and in your, in, in your inmost minds. And I want, I want to, this to be an, a test and an evidence that you are my people, the seal, the sign, especially the fourth commandment, especially that part which doesn't make logical sense, except that God said so, and so I'm going to obey. And on the other hand, we have the church's law. And the church says it really doesn't matter which day you go, as long as you have a Sabbath day. And the church says we can worship images and so forth. I want us to take a little bit uh, closer look at what the Roman Catholic Church says. This is from Converts 
catechism, and um, I've got a, I've, I have a similar catechism in my library. Um, I'm always looking for, for, for these types of interesting materials of what the church teaches. Um, the Converse Catechism says the questions in a question and answer form, as catechisms are, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Well, aren't you glad that they got that straight? Um, even though it's not in their Ten Commandments, at least they're teaching the truth, right? So far, so good. But the next question says, why do we observe Sunday instead of Sabbath? And the answer says, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Now, we went over in some detail the history of the change from Saturday to Sunday back in our series. You can go back and listen to that online. Um, there's a lot of history that took place over several hundred years. But the church makes no, um, has no difficulty not only admitting but claiming and boasting that it had the power to change one day of the week from being holy to another day of the week being holy. And that's what they say right here in this catechism. Another, um, another statement uh, from uh, the, an abridgment of the Christian doctrine, page 58. This is the church again speaking. By the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants allow of, and therefore fondly... I'm sorry, I got these... Fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. So I got a slide out of order there. Let me show you what it was supposed to be. There you go. Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals and of, of precept? And the answer is... The answer is, by the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants allow of, and therefore fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. In other words, the church is saying, look, most of the Christian world agrees with us that we have the power to establish a holy day. And so it's inconsistent to say we have the power to change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday and not keep the rest of the holy days. Not the rest of the law, for that matter. This is the sign that they say that they have this power. We go on. And, um, uh, okay, that's a different question. Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept? Had she not had such power, she could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. So the church says, look, we can prove we have power, divine power to even change God's law, because we are able to change the Sabbath from the the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. They make no bones about it, right? They're very, very upfront about it. And um, this is, in fact, the evidence that they say of their influence and power. In fact, one, um, one writer said this way, um, it is the mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority. So my, my belief, friends, 
After studying these prophecies, after studying the history, after studying how it's been fulfilled, how it's being fulfilled today, I believe that in the last days, America is going to turn from protecting religious freedom to actually what may be, it may seem to be very good. Actually, I suspect it'll happen something like this. If you're going to let my imagination run a little bit, I suspect it's going to be sort of a revival people going back to God. We need to get more religious in this country. We, maybe because of some of the judgments we're seeing in the land, everything's going crazy, right? And we need God's blessing again. We need to get back to God, and, and we're, we're going to get back to having a day of worship that everyone has to worship. And which day you think it's going to be? You think it's going to be the day that the Ten Commandments say? Or you think it's going to be the day that the church says, and today almost everyone just accepts. Now, I realize for many people it's not a real big deal. I realize there are many very sincere, honest Christians that worship every Sunday, and I love them. They're my, they're my brothers and sisters. I don't question their sincerity or their salvation. I don't question any of those things. But friends, listen to me carefully. The time is coming when there's going to be, have to be a decision made. And the decision is between the seal of God and the mark of the beast. Who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey God's law? Or are you going to obey man's law? Which side are we going to be on? That's how I see Revelation unfolding. And I've been saying this. I think I first preached this message in 1994. I did a series, a seminar series, something like this. I was only 21 years old. Um, boy, I've learned a lot since then. But nothing I have learned studying prophecy or watching history unfold, nothing I have learned has changed what I expect is going to happen. I expect mankind is going to have to make a decision. Things are going to get so bad in this world that people are going to say there's only one explanation for it, and that's God's cursing us. We've got to get back to God. And that would be a good response. It would be a good thing if they got back to the Word of God yeah. instead of turning to the church. Remember the other day we were talking about how the Pope came to power in Rome in the first place? The civil government deteriorated to such an extent that they turned to the Bishop of Rome and they pleaded with him to be their leader. And if you look at the dysfunction in our world today in government, not to name any names or any countries, but if you look at the legislative and executive dysfunction that's happening all around the world, it tells me we're getting close to the point where I think, I think the people of this world are going to throw up their hands and say, we just need a different type of government. And we need someone with moral strength. And um, while many people won't necessarily worship the first beast, the United States will make it easy by recreating a similar situation where Protestantism now, although once protesting the first beast, Protestantism now sets up an image to this first beast and once again coerces conscience. That's, that's how I understand Revelation chapter 14. Now, uh, chapter 13. Here is wisdom. He that has understanding, let him count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and the number of him is 666. Now, I, I want you to notice, you still have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 13. I want you to notice that there's a passage here that makes it very clear that there's a difference between the beast 
and his mark and his name and his number. Do you notice that? They're, 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 they're listed out there, so they can't be one and the same thing. Many people, they, they think 666 is the mark of the beast. Well, it's in the same chapter as the mark of the beast, put it that way. But there's nothing that says 666 is the mark of the beast. Did you notice that? Revelation chapter 13, and um, that must have been about verse, um, verse 17. And that no one may buy ourselves except one who has the mark or the name or the number of his name. You see that? So um, 666, while it's an important part of this chapter, it's not the mark of the beast. If you get a credit card that has three sixes in it, it's probably not meaning that you're going to be lost. Um, if your phone number has three sixes in it, it's probably not going to mean you're going to be lost. The 666 is a spiritual mark. Now, if we talk a little bit about symbology in the Bible, remember that numbers have meaning, right? The number seven in the Bible is completeness and perfection. Six is just almost there, but not quite, isn't it? And so, if, it, if anything, the number 666 hints that the deceptions in the last day are going to be really hard to see because they're going to be almost the truth. It's going to be so good, but not quite. 666, almost, almost there, but not quite. And here we find that, um, that the, the Bible says it is the number of a man... And the number of him is 666. Now, if the beast of Revelation, the first beast of Revelation 13, is the papacy, as we have posited that it is, is there any possibility that there would be a, a one person or a man who would be sort of a figurehead in that organization? Any ideas? I mean, if there's ever an organization where there's been one person as a figurehead, it would be the papacy, wouldn't it be? The Pope. The Pope is the figurehead of that organization. In fact, um, um, Catholics hold that the church, which is a visible society, must have a visible head. And who is that visible head? That's the Pope. Now, um, of course, if the church has lasted for six centuries, I mean, not six centuries, thousands of years, almost 2,000 years, then 1,500 years at least, then it couldn't have been one person, right? And so we're not talking about the number of a person, a, an individual, but instead a, of that office, that, that office of the Pope. And so if, if we look at, very interesting, in fact, this is what I learned. This is one thing that I learned just today. I was reading a book on this passage um, because I've, I've, you know, I've studied from the Bible. I've, I've, I've taught it for many years, but I can always learn new things, right? And the book referenced the doom. Reims Douay version, Douay Reims version of the Bible, you know, the Roman Catholic version of the Bible, and it said in the comments in the, in, in the, the Douay version of the Bible, it commented this, the numeral letters of his name shall make up this number. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I've studied this for how many years? I've I've never seen that in the Douay version. So I, I got one Douay version out, and I said, it's not there. There was no comments. It's not in the text. So I actually found online, and it's, um, it's the, uh, I think I put it in my notes, did I? Yeah, it's drbo.org, the Doom Dewey Reams Bible, whatever, drbo.org, and I looked up Revelation 13, verse 18, and there it was. The comments say, the numeral letters of his name shall make up 
this number. Now, if we take the title, which was first given to um, the Pope many, many years back, in fact, it's part of the, um, the, the, what do they call it, the Donation of Constantine, which we now believe is forged, but nevertheless was used early on to establish the civil and spiritual sovereignty of the popes. Um, um, the, the, the title of the Pope is Vicarious Philae Dei, which in Latin, Vicar of the Son of God, or uh, Representative of the Son of God. And in Latin, the Roman numerals, taking what the Reims Douay version says, the Roman numerals come out to 666. Now, you can take other names, can't you? You could find other names that come out with 666. So this wouldn't by itself prove what the beast is. But having so many other indications throughout Daniel and Revelation and having this one actually match and fit is just further confirmation, isn't it? That the, uh, the Latin title of the Pope, Vicarius Filii Dei, um, comes out to a numerical value of 666. Now, what does all this mean for us? What it means for us, friends, I believe it means we're living in one of the greatest times of Earth's history. I believe we're living in a time when, when we are seeing prophecy fulfilled. We could be living in the very last days, and we're living in a time when we need to be very close to Jesus. Remember, Revelation 13 is borrowing language from Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is that story of the Hebrew worthies who said, it doesn't matter what you do to us, King Nebuchadnezzar, even if our God doesn't save us from the fire furnace, we're still not going to obey your laws. We're not going to worship the way Babylon says we should worship. We're going to worship the way God says we should worship. That's what they said. We are going to do, even if we die, we're going to be faithful to your law. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to rationalize. We're not going to say, well, it really isn't a big thing. I can just tie my shoe right now. We're going to stand tall on the plain of Dura because we are, we are followers of the King of Kings. And He's more powerful than the beast of Revelation. He's more powerful than the Lion of Daniel. He's more powerful than any potentate, any power which has ever been. We're going to follow Him. We want His blessing, His approval. That's what they did. In Daniel and uh, Revelation, we see these, these two things being... Um, being contrasted and, and compared. Daniel, uh, there's a literal Babylon. In Revelation, we have a spiritual Babylon. In Daniel, we have a, a Babylon who's dominated the world, and Revelation 13 tells us the Babylon will dominate the world. It's, its fall was predicted, and once again, so the fall of spiritual Babylon is predicted. It erects an image in both chapters. It compels worship. Three Jews refuse to worship. In Revelation, we find three angels' messages to tell the world not to worship. Um, amazing symbolism that comes through here. The issue is worship in both chapters, isn't it? There's a death decree in both chapters. People go through the, God's people go through a fiery trial in both chapters. But the good news, friends, is that God sees them through and they're delivered by the Son of Man. They're delivered by the Son of God. There is coming day, a day when Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going, to re, is going to deliver His people. I don't fear the coming events because I know the end of the story. I know that Jesus conquers. The Lamb wins. And those who stay close to Him are going to triumph with Him. You know, the Bible says that the mark of the beast... The mark of the beast either is, is given on the forehead or in the hand. I think it means this. There are some people 
who are going to receive the mark of the beast who really believe that they're doing the right thing. They believe they're serving God when they are obeying the beast's law instead of God's law. That's sad because the, they have the opportunity of studying the Bible, don't they? They have the opportunity of knowing. But I think there's some people who, who they really believe they're going to be doing the right thing by obeying what man says they should do in worshiping God. There are some who receive it in the hand, meaning they may not believe it, but they don't see any other option. Maybe they already knew the truth. They've studied Revelation. They know this is coming, but they don't have a close relationship with Jesus. If you don't have a close relationship with Jesus, friends, then you're going to end up going with the crowd anyway because it's just not going to be easy to stand against those types of threats and those types of punishments. Some people receive that mark in their hand, but do you, did you notice there's only one place you can receive the seal of God? Where is it? It's in your forehead. It's because the only way for us to be saved is for us to understand and know Jesus in a personal way, for our, 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 our mind and our heart to be in it. It's not by doing the right thing, no. It's by having His law written, His name written in our forehead. Revelation 13 ends, it ends with this terrible situation, the world being forced, being forced to receive the mark of the beast. But uh, did you notice how Revelation 14 begins? I love it. Revelation 14 doesn't describe a, a woeful scene of, of uh, defeat. After seeing the beast and all his power and the, the first beast and the second beast working together and the whole world being coerced and death decrees and not being able to buy or sell, John says, I looked, then I looked. You want to know what he saw? I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his Father's name written in their foreheads. The good news, friends, is that not everyone's going to be worshiping the beast. There's going to be a group of people who have that seal of God, the Father's name, the Father's law, the Father's character written in their foreheads, and they're going to be following the Lamb wherever He goes, it describes. How do they have that experience? Study Revelation 14, 6 and 7, 8 and 9. They, they, they are spared the mark of the beast because they listen to the warning that God gives them to worship Him, worship the Creator. I don't know about you, but I know where I want my mark to be. I want it to be right here, and I know which mark I want to have. I want to have the seal of God. I want to have that, that Father's name, that Father's law, the Father's character written in my forehead. And I want to be with Him standing on Mount Zion one day. How about you? That's my desire. I don't, I don't care what it takes. I want to be there with Him. And I hope you do too. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Um, you've blessed us as we've opened your word We've looked at a passage here that's not yet fulfilled, and so there's always going to be questions. There's always going to be uncertainties, perhaps. But as we look around us in the world today, we see the drumbeats of its fulfillment already. We see that it's just around the corner, and I believe, I believe you're not waiting. You're not waiting for the right things to happen in Washington or in Rome. I think you're waiting for the right things to happen in our hearts. I think you're waiting for us to receive that seal of, of your 
writing your law in our hearts and us being willing to obey just because you said so. Lord, I pray for that experience myself. I pray that we might each, everyone under the sound of my voice, that we might each one day be standing there on Mount Zion. Father's mark, the Father's seal, the Father's name written in our foreheads. Lord, it's not by our own works that we gain the victory over the image. It's by your blood. You said in Revelation chapter 12 that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives until the death. And I pray that may be our experience tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.